0: Welcome to Past Imperfect, a podcast about African history, literature and art. Today's podcast is about an image, a photograph, and it is one that depicts a deeply disturbing scene. Nevertheless, it is an interesting and I think valuable story, and one that is rarely told. This is a Southern African story. It is the story of a photograph taken in 1896 in Bulawayo, in what is now Zimbabwe. It is also the story of Cecil John Rhodes and of a court case. The photograph is of three unknown black men hanged at a tree. The court case is one of corruption. In some ways, it is a Southern African first story, a story that has had an eternal recurrence. It could be the story of Jacob Zuma and Maracana, of Favut and Sharpville, of Foster and Soweto, of Burta and the 80s, of de Klerk and the Third Force, of Mugabe and the Gukuruhundi. The image is...
1: An, an image of humiliation, total degradation.
0: That is the voice of Paul Walters, Professor Emeritus at Rhodes University. He, along with Jeremy Fogg, is one of the few researchers to have studied the history of this image, and he should be listened to. This image is deeply disturbing. This podcast contains a discussion around what would today be called a war crime. And perhaps we should first listen to somebody who, as far as I know, never saw this image. These
2: dead are supremely uninterested in the living, in those who took their lives, in witnesses, and in us. Why should they seek our gaze? What would they have to say to us? We, this we is everyone who has never experienced anything like what they went through. We don't understand. We don't get it. We truly can't imagine what it was like. We can't imagine how dreadful, how terrifying war is and how normal it becomes. I think that we have to know things and we have to know a little bit of history. This is something
1: that we want to set the images in.
0: That was Susan Sontag, reading from and talking about her book regarding the pain of others. These are important ideas and ones that this podcast is interested in. But it is also concerned with the ethics of this photograph and what use it was put to. The photograph was found in a hairdresser's in Kimberley sometime in 1896. It then appeared at the front of Olive Schreiner's novel Trooper Peter Halkett of Mashonaland. It was used as a pamphlet in the 1898 election in the Cape Colony and then was admitted as evidence in a court case when a young lawyer called Henry Burton took Cecil John Rhodes to court over electoral bribery and corruption. Uh, and
2: this is you know, something that doesn't really come out from. You know, any of the kind of existing literature. If you look at, um, you know, biographies of Cecil Rhodes.
0: That is Brian Willen, the other voice you will hear in this podcast. Willen is Sol Plyke's biographer and was perhaps the first historian to uncover the story of Burton, who was Plyke's friend, and Cecil Rhodes. And with the mention of Rhodes, we should acknowledge that it is he who looms over this photograph. It is, in many ways, his story. It was around the time of the taking of the photograph that Rhodes had been forced to step down as Prime Minister of the Cape Colony because of his involvement in the Jamison Raid. And this is where the story begins, at the time of Rhodes' attempt to stage the overthrow of the government of the Boer Transvaal Republic in the last days of 1895. That is, when Rhodes's friend and co-conspirator Dr. Leander Starr Jamison, led a small contingent of armed men into the Transvaal on the understanding that the British miners in Johannesburg would rise up against Kruger's government. The raid proved to be an ignominious failure, and Jamison and Rhodes were forced to go to London to testify to their involvement. At the same time, another politics was brewing north of the Transvaal in Matabililand where Rhodes and Jamison had established the beginnings of what would become Rhodesia and later Zimbabwe. What was then the beginning of a large privatized fiefdom with its own private pioneer army and where settler law was independent from the British empire and purely beholden to Rhodes's British South Africa company. Here Paul Walters takes up the story.
1: Now uh Apparently, according to accomplish the Jamison Raid, Jamison removed every white man uh, with a rifle from Rhodesia to congregate in Bechuanaland in order to conduct the Jamison Raid. And uh, Lovangula's heirs saw this. This was the opportunity because the white man and the guns had gone. Um, That's why they rose in 1896 in the first Chimarenga. And Bulawayo was a tiny little settlement surrounded by the Matabele. And obviously there must have been one or two people left with, with guns, but the, the the whole of the pioneer column, everybody formed the, the initial, you know, surge into Rhodesia was called off And so they they took the gap and rose in rebellion. And, oh dear, wait a minute. That is the catch. Where were we? Yes. So, and that occurred in March 1896. Now, a relief column was organized out of Kimberley and Mafeking under a Colonel Plumer, or is it a U pronounced O? I don't know, but I'm just calling him Plumer. But they did not reach... Bulawayo until May.
0: But the question is, who took this photograph? With Plumer was a man by the name of Sykes, who would later write a book called With Plumer in Matabeleland. He, it would seem, had a camera. But for various reasons, Walters and Fogg dismiss Sykes as the photographer. Certainly, no such photograph appeared in his book. However, what does appear is a description and the description matches almost perfectly with that of the photograph.
1: He talks of the tree. Sorties, numerous other engagements took place within sight of Bulawayo. Sorties being made from the town almost daily by the Bulawayo field force. After a while, it is a common occurrence for a detachment of troopers to go out early in the morning, uh, shoot down some rebels, and return to breakfast. What rebel spies were caught was summarily tried and hanged. There is a tree known as the Hanging Tree to the north of the town uh, which did service as gallows. So Sykes writes about this, mm. but he does not include that photograph in his book.
0: What is perhaps missing in this story is just what Olive Schreiner's involvement is in the image. Schreiner wrote the book that we have mentioned, Trooper Peter Halkett of Mashonaland, in which the image appeared. As the frontispiece. The book is about a Christ figure who appears in Mashonaland land on the top of a copy to a young impressionable follower of Rhodes. The book registers something of importance. At the heart of it is the idea that there are two sets of values, one for Britain and one for its colonies, one for the white man and one for natives. The book seeks to expose this kind of hypocrisy, but what is interesting about Sykes' description is that he almost registers this himself, this moment of colonial doubt.
1: This, this, this adoption of lynch law, he calls it, in inverted commas, in Bulawayo, may not commit itself to the ultra-humane ideas associated with Exeter Hall. But it must be borne in mind that swift and decisive punishment was the only way to overawe the rebels, and actions which under other conditions might be regarded as brutal were justifiable, nay, absolutely essential at times such as these.
0: What is interesting in this point in the story is to note that Rhodes was in Matabeleland before Plumer's column arrived to relieve Bulawayo. He had come back from London having managed to extricate himself from censure with regards to his involvement in the Jamison Raid, and had left London and gone to Fort Salisbury, modern-day Harare, via Mozambique. There he planned to lie low until the political storm in both London and the Cape Colony had blown over. Having arrived in Fort Salisbury, he had gone south with a column of men into Matabeleland. And it is there that both his actions and his reported speech are of interest. According to Rhodes's biographer, Anthony Thomas, Rhodes openly endorsed a policy of terror against the Matabele. He is reported to have said that you should not spare them the Matabele. You should kill all you can, as it serves as a lesson to them when they talk things over at their fires at night. According to other eyewitnesses, Rhodes delighted in returning to the scene of the fighting to count Matabili corpses. This, in some ways, suggests something of Vietnam and the body count. Rhodes is also said to have actively participated in burning crops and capturing women and cattle. Here, Sykes's words should come back to us. There is a direct link between Rhodes and the hangings. Although he may not have been there at the time in Bulawayo, he was certainly just a matter of miles northeast participating in what he openly referred to as a policy of terror. But here we need to go back because we need to explain just how Olive Schreiner fits into the picture. Schreiner had had huge success with her novel The Story of an African Farm in England but she had had two fraught relationships that had ended in disaster. She had in 1890 returned to South Africa and had gone to live in the very small town of Mikesfontein. There she had met Cecil John Rhodes, and they had become friends. However, by 1891, she began to have her doubts about Rhodes and his policies. She had written a satirical play about the Cape Parliament and Rhodes' attempt to get through what was known as the Strop Bill through Parliament, which would have allowed white men to beat their black servants. In 1892, she'd met a man called Samuel Cronwright. In the same year, she had ended her friendship with Rhodes on the platform at Fontaine.
1: And that is where Olive allegedly, according to herself, turned her heel on Rhodes and refused ever to speak to him again. She overheard Rhodes, Logan and Sivrite. Sivrite was Minister of Railways. On the platform at Fontaine.
0: What Paul Walters is talking about here is the first piece of state capture in South African history, when Rhodes and Sibright handed James Logan, a friend of theirs, the tender for the railways. And it was for this the Shriner, as Walters points out, broke with Rhodes. Two years later, she would marry Cronwright, and Cronwright would agree to take her name, and they would become known as the Cronwright Shriners. In 1895, Cronwright would get up in the Kimberley Town Hall and give a speech on the political situation, where he attacked Rhodes for retrogressive legislation on the native question. It was later discovered that Schreiner herself had been a co-author of the speech. By 1896, according to letters, Schreiner had begun to hear stories of what was happening up in Mashonaland and Matabeleland, land, and it was around this time that she began to formulate her novel. But there was an important piece in the jigsaw puzzle that was missing, the photograph. For many years, it was a mystery as to how it came into the hands of the Cronwright Shriners. But that mystery was resolved by Walters and Fogg.
1: Jeremy was a schoolteacher who was later, he did librarianship at UCT, and so that carefulness of the Is instilled into every librarian. He was going page by page through the Cronwright archive and he suddenly came across Cron's Dutch edition of Truth Lisa. And Cron had written a copy of this photograph, etc., etc., I found in a hairdresser's in Dutoys Pan Road in Kimberley and I bought it for three shillings. Cron had written that in his Dutch edition, first Dutch edition. We link that with where the uh, Bulawayo relief force was recruited, Kimberley and Mafeking, all right? This, barbershops were gathering places for men in those, in those days. Uh, and many, many people would not do their own morning shave. They would go to a barbershop to be shaved. So it was very much a gathering, a focal point, for the men of Kimber, and I I think the barber I think it was placed there as as sort of triumphalist propaganda you know uh, we we know how to deal with rebels and spies kind of thing that would be that's purely a hypothesis but that is my hypothesis from finding it and buying it from from the hairdressers Cronwright Schreiner says I took it home to Olive now Maybe part of his motivation was to to remove it from public view. But they go to Port Alfred. Uh, She loses, she has another miscarriage. They go to Port Alfred late 1895. Olive does nothing for four days, and suddenly the fifth morning she wakes with this whole thing in her head, according to letters that she wrote.
0: Paul Walters is referring to is Trooper Peter Helcote of Mashonaland. Shriner's novel, in which she exposed Rhodes's rule in Mashona Land and Matabeleland. Land. In the novel, a Christ figure appears. There is certain evidence that suggests that Shriner had this idea in mind before receiving the photograph. But there is something in that photograph that is a clear reference to Christ. The three figures hanging from a tree seem to have a direct allusion to the crucifixion. Another element, and perhaps one that is also never mentioned, is just who these pioneers were who stand watching this strange fruit. Although nobody has ever mentioned it, if you zoom in, not all of the settlers are white. This in many ways complicates the colonial narrative. A complication that we will see again in the 1898 Barclay West election, where Rhodes managed to defeat Henry Burton. However, there is still a mystery that we need to uncover, and one that potentially Paul Walters and Jeremy Fogg did. Who took this photograph? If it wasn't Sykes, then who else was up in Bulawayo at the time with a camera? Am I remembering correctly that there is an, another image similar to this that you uncovered, or somebody uncovered in, in Zimbabwe, is Zimbabwe, that right?
1: In, in, yeah, Harare. Yes. Uh, Malcolm Hacksley, who was then director of NIL, um was up in Zimbabwe on, on business, I think. He knew that we were working on this, and by chance he just went into the Zimbabwe archives, and started asking questions which aroused a high state of anxiety with the person that he was. And they said, all right, well, follow me. And kind of in some obscure basement, they came up. Obviously, these, these images are so humiliating to, I mean, that's, that's one of the most appalling aspects, isn't it? An, an image of humiliation, total degradation. This this uh, chap in the archives, more or less, said it was more than his job was worth. It was known that he was actually showing these materials. But Malcolm then wrote an email to Jeremy in which he gave what details were on the folder, which had a very similar photograph. Uh,
0: do we know if it's the same three what are referred to as spies?
1: Uh, Malcolm says, it shows two bodies hanging from a branch. Okay, so <laughs> fewer spies, while several white men look on. It is not the one published in Trooper Peter Halkett, but could be another taken from a different angle on the same occasion. The enlargement states that it is a photograph of the hanging of rebels. The original is in the Mercer collection, M-E-R-C-E-R, And records that it was taken in Main Street between 1st Avenue and 2nd Avenue Boulevard in 1896, that's right, when seven men were shot or hanged as spies. Photographer E.B.S. Mercer is the credit given. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: The copyright holder is given as Mr. Brown. Provenance, the original was found among F. Fortune's Brothers papers, and that's all there is By way of any kind of clue but it would, on the basis of that evidence we could say that the probable photographer was EBS Mercer.
0: Schreiner almost certainly wanted to offer the book and the photograph as evidence to the British public of Rhodes' crimes. However, Schreiner would always feel that the book had largely been overlooked But the story of Rhodes and the photograph does not end here. And it is strangely caught up in the story of Sol Plyke, one of the founders of the ANC. Although Plyke has no direct relevance to the story itself, he is linked to both the Shriners and to a young lawyer called Henry Burton. Pleike mentions Burton and the election of 1898 in Barclay West in his Mafeking Diary. And it was while researching Pleike's life in Kimberley that Brian Willen uncovered a coda to the story of the photograph and Cecil Rhodes. And to uncover the story of the court case, we need again to go back to the Jamison Raid and begin to understand the very complicated politics of the Cape Colony
2: you need to go back to the jameson raid in eighteen ninety five eighteen ninety six which really transformed the whole southern african political landscape with rhodes and his conspirators including the british imperial government uh, essentially trying to get control of the, the goldfield on the rand uh, which had been the, the big kind of game changer since sort well, of 1896, 1898. there had been a big polarisation in political and I suppose racial attitudes between uh, British and uh, and Afrikaner. And there had been, I suppose, two parties. Particularly had had emerged the Progressive Party, which was essentially the the, the British party, and then the uh, the, the Afrikaner Bond, which which represented to a large extent Afrikaners. But uh, I think it also sort of represented. Quite a few white English speakers in in the Cape who were extremely worried about the Cape Colony being caught up in these uh, kind of major disputes and uh, an impending war. I think as 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 some already were seeing this between the British government and the Transvaal and, and the Free State. So I so suppose that that was the background, a uh, kind of aggressive um, British imperialism, and the effect that this was all having on 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 Cape politics. And, and it meant that um, the eighteen ninety eight election was, was really pretty toxic than had been the case previously. So there, essentially there was a there was a kind of big uh, national picture going on, which pretty much influenced um, what was going on in, in Barclay West, particularly, of course, because uh, one of the uh, the candidates was none, none other than Cecil Rhodes, who'd, who'd been the uh, MP for uh, Barclay West since 1894.
0: Here, something needs to be mentioned the unique constitution of the Cape Colony. In 1854, this constitution had come into place, and it allowed men of a certain wealth to vote. All men, no matter what race or colour. Although by 1898, some of this legislation had been eroded, it was nevertheless true throughout the colony that men who could write their names and had a certain amount of wealth, were allowed to vote. Brian Willen explains.
2: Uh, Barclay West was one of those constituencies that had a, a pretty high proportion of black and color voters, um, which which did give it quite a, a kind of distinctive profile, because it, it meant... That, that both Cecil Rhodes and uh, Henry Burton, who was the main Africana Bond candidate standing against him.
0: Here we should just quickly add that Burton was a friend of Cronwright Shriners from school and had become well known as a lawyer in Kimberley for taking on black clients.
2: Um, didn't make um, particular efforts to get um, black and colour votes, um, as well as, um, you know, going of, of, of white inhabitants of the of the constituency, and I think that's that's one reason why the whole issue of the um, uh, the, the photograph of the hangings in in, in became uh, an important part of the campaign because it was it was thought by uh, Henry Burton I think that you know here was a way of uh, attacking Cecil Rhodes, uh, the thinking being that the black and coloured voters in uh, Barclay West would be particularly appalled by this image um, and therefore vote for Henry Burton and the Bond rather than, than, than Cecil Rhodes. Um, so that, that was, um, you know, one of the, the quite interesting characteristics of the constituency that I think partly explains, you know, why uh, that this particular photograph was, was kind of thrown into play as you were. C- certainly, Cronwright Schreiner was was very involved um, with Henry Burton. He he assisted him on his campaign. And he, I think he helped to to run his kind of uh, his office when when Henry Burton was out campaigning. So he was very much a, a kind of power. Behind the scenes, as it were. I'm not quite so sure about Olive Schreiner. I think she was a bit more in the background, so far as the election campaigning was concerned. But she had a a pretty astute view, I think, of of what was going on there. And um, I mean, in in a number of her, her letters, she's Extremely critical of the uh, degree and level of, of corruption that was uh, evident um, even from the, the previous year, actually even before campaigning had had started so both both Olive Schreiner and Cronwright Schreiner were great critics of cecil Rhodes and, and I think that's that partly explains you know the the position that they took and their particular interest in in, in that election campaign
0: in Ruth first. And Anne Scott's biography of Olive Schreiner, they mention precisely this, that Cronwright campaigned for the Bond candidate in Berkeley West, where his job was to campaign for African votes, and that Cronwright sent Onsi-Yan Hofmeyer, who was the head of the Bond, explicit instructions not to mention the Bont in election propaganda directed at the Africans. He wrote, All work regarding natives had better be done by me. Don't mention the Bond." The appeal to the natives must be directly against Rhodes as their oppressor. There followed some detailed suggestions. One was that the photograph in Peter Halkett slash excellent idea to disseminate it widely, but don't mention Peter Halkett or my wife. Just say this photo shows how natives are treated in Rhodesia and don't mention Transvaal. First and Scott go on to say that this is was election propaganda of the worst sort, in which Cronwright manipulated the evidence to conceal the bonds and the Boer Republic's policy on African questions. For their own reasons the Shriners had decided that the Bont was the lesser of the evils between Rhodes and imperialism and its racism and the Afrikaner racism that existed in both the Transvaal and in the Bont's ideology. Despite people like Sol Plyke and John Tengo Jabavu's support of Burton in the election, Burton lost. But the question is now, how did this image end up in the court file? And what was this court case about,
2: and There were two particular issues that arose during the campaign which uh, which Burton thought if the case was proven against Cecil Rhodes, he felt that this ought to invalidate the result because Rhodes ought to be found guilty of, of corruption and breaking the uh, electoral laws. And the, the two particular issues that, that were at stake were Rhodes had... Distributed a leaflet, I think the day or a day or two before the, the polling day. And it was aimed at the, the quite significant numbers of, of, of diggers who were voters in Barclay West. And that's a mixture, I think, of both black and white and, and coloured. And, and what they wanted was for a, a lot of extra land along uh, the Baal River to be thrown open to them so that they could go in for their diggings and see what they could find. And Rhodes actually then said, That's fine. I understand your concerns. I've spoken to the owner of the land, people called the Fall River Estates, and that's fine. We're going to throw open the land so you can go there and and see what you can find. Now, it it turned out that the, the Val River Estates hadn't actually agreed to this. Rhodes had spoken to them and the possibility had arisen. But no commitment had been made, but obviously, from rose 's point of view, it was a, a vote winner. if he could say to these people, "Vote for me, you know, and this is what will happen so that that was one thing the The, the second issue was um, yeah, there was a man called um, Pukwani, who was the African election agent for uh, Henry Burton. Uh, and there were well documented um, allegations reported, and uh, it was reported that um, Rhodes's uh, election agent had basically tried to bribe Pukwana and offered him um, 50 pounds, and then I think 60 pounds when 50 pounds didn't do the trick, basically to to change sides. And Pokwani had, you know, had, had, refused, um, to, to do so. But Rhodes's election agent, when questioned about this, said, yes, he had offered this money and also that Cecil Rhodes had authorized him to do so, which, you know, was, was potentially, you know, pretty, pretty damning. So I think those were the two issues that, um, uh, that Burton felt, well, if these, if these two things were, were proved, then uh, Cecil Rhodes's election would have to be overturned.
0: Chief Justice J.H. De Villiers, who presided over the case, said that the case had not been proven. He stated in his ruling that although Rhodes and his correspondent Hill had not actually entered the forbidden ground of bribery, they have come perilously close to it, as Willen suggests this was surprising
2: interestingly there 's a bit of a difference between the the evidence that appeared in the the court records and, and you can find those records in the in the archives in Cape Town. Um, and what was reported in the newspapers, um, including the, uh, the Diamond Fields advertiser. And I think Rhodes essentially got away with it because he said he did claim responsibility. Um, and I think, you know, electoral law or so it was interpreted at the time by the Chief Justice, um, meant that if, if Rhodes could make that claim and be believed, then he would get away with it. And, uh, and, and he did, but there is quite a contrast, you know, you look at the evidence and you look at the judgment and, well, oh, actually these things don't really stack up very well. But Rose was a, a powerful person and I, 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 I guess maybe the Chief Justice and the other jo- judges didn't quite want to face up to the, the possibility of finding Social Rhodes Guilty on
0: this. This story is not mentioned in any biography of Rhodes that I have ever come across. As Willen suggests, this is surprising. As he also goes on to say, there are some distinctive contemporary similarities to the case against Rhodes and how it manifested itself in society.
1: It was quite widely reported, but
2: I think because of I mean certainly in Kimberley, you know, the Diamond Fields advertiser was, you know, was was very pro progressive. Uh, it was never going to do anything to uh really to criticise Cecil Rose. They would always find uh, excuses for what he was doing, or they would downplay its significance. So you had a curious situation where all of this, you know, evidence of corruption, uh, and Knowledge Schreiner said, well, it was absolutely bare-faced corruption. It's just extraordinary. Um, just kind of passed by. I mean, I mean it's, it's less comparable to to Trump's America these days. He said, after a while, you know, you, you get so anew to it that somehow, you know, it kind of just passes over.
0: What is interesting about this court case is the presence of the photograph and its use within the case. As Willen says, it was in fact a piece of evidence brought into the case by Rhodes himself and his lawyer. I mean,
2: it was an exhibit in the trial and I, I think it probably got up there as a result of the efforts of Cecil Rhodes' lawyer who I guess it would have been logical for him to uh, to put the other side, uh, to, to get some kind of sympathy, as it were, from the, the judges in the case, that, you know, if something like this was being thrown around by Henry Burton and Cronwright Schreiner, then it somehow kind of made a bit more excusable the, the action that, um, that Cecil Rhodes was, was, was taking himself, uh, election itself. And, and it meant that, um, uh, and this is, you know, something that doesn't really come out from, you know, any of the kind of existing literature. If you look at um, you know, biographies of Cecil Rhodes and, and all of that, um, this the case is barely mentioned. Um and if you look at the um uh, uh you know the, the most recent kind of large scale biography of, of of Cecil Rhodes, um uh it, it says, well, um Cecil Rhodes, you know, did not address any kind of African, you know, coloured meetings you know during the course of the campaign which is actually absolutely not the case he he certainly did um and he certainly on one reported occasion he did take the opportunity to directly deny and you know to address the the problem of this photograph that had been circulated very widely in 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 barclay west and you know he did specifically address the issue and said look um this is uh, disgraceful that this photograph has been used against me in this way. Uh yes, these people, you know, were hung, but they had actually been tried, they were found guilty of murder, and that this was, you know, the right and appropriate thing to do. And um, you know, he, he Cecil Rhodes does seem to have had some success in um you know in, in conveying uh you know that that view and that argument.
0: This defense and this language of course reflects that of Sykes that we mentioned earlier on in the podcast. There is one distinction though. Sykes's appeal was not to justice, but to necessity. Rhodes, it would seem, claimed that his acts were just ones. But there was something corrupt even at the meeting when Rhodes went to discuss the photograph with the black electorate. There, the very same man who had tried to bribe Burton's election agent, popped up to propose a final resolution at the meeting.
2: There was a report of, uh, of a meeting in, uh, in Barclay West, uh, it was reportedly the, the Diamond Fields advertiser, you know, when, when Rhodes did specifically address the issue. And at the end of the meeting, um, a, there was a, a resolution, um, that was put forward by David, Reverend David Zakinia, um, who was uh, a Wesleyan Clergyman, you know, from, he actually came from Kimberley, not from Barclay West. And all the evidence was that, um, uh, the, um, Cecil Rhodes and his election agent, uh, had put money his way and that Mr. was actually the, uh, intermediary, uh, in the attempt to bribe, um, Bokwani, uh, election agent. So, um, I think things weren't, you know, quite what they seemed on the surface in terms of, of those reports.
0: This image of three Black man hanged at a tree played a surprisingly significant role in early South African history. And as I have suggested, there is a strain running through its story that has bred into the bone of our politics. This, to me at least, requires us to look at it and to keep looking at it. What is also fundamental to its story is just how it was used to drum up popular support for both the followers of Rhodes and his political adversaries. This, of course, would depend on whose hands it was in and which public was viewing it, from colonial adventurers in the barbershop in Kimberley to the black electorate at Barclay West to the judge in Rhodes's trial. This complication is something that we are acutely familiar with in our social media-driven lives. Just who this image managed to persuade is impossible to say. What is possible to state is that three men died that day in Bulawayo, and their image now stands as a totem for our history.